Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Yeah, Matthew chapter 5 is what we're looking at this morning. It's continuing in the series uh, on the Beatitudes. And uh, we'll be reading um, the first nine verses together. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew 5 verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's read through to the end of the little passage. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, We just love getting into it and and we pray that you would bless our understanding of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks back I was reading in um, the book of Acts um, and... uh, for those who are not familiar with the book of Acts, it's the story of the start of the early church after the, the death of Jesus and his resurrection and he went to be with the Father in glory and then the Holy Spirit came and um, raised up the new church, the early church. And I was uh, really blown away by something that I read um, in Acts 10 and 11 because... One of the the words that I'm sort of wanting to focus on for a moment first up this morning is the word change. In Acts 10 and 11, God had to do some things to bring about some change in the thinking of that early church. And uh, we read, in fact, that Peter, um, the apostle, was up on the, the roof of his house, or a house where he was staying at one stage, and um, which was the custom at the time. And God lowered down this big sheet with a whole lot of animals on it. And these animals were unclean for the Jewish people. And yet God said to Peter in this vision, take, kill and eat. 
Wow, that, that just blew Peter away. No, Lord. And that vision occurred three times. Three times it occurred. And eventually, Peter got the message to take, kill and eat. That which had been unclean was no longer unclean. Wow. Just to hammer home the point, a few minutes later, this, these guys knock at the front door and say to, say to Peter, hey, our, our boss, who's the Roman centurion, oops, a non-Jew, a Roman centurion, wants you to come and spend some time at his place. Now, a few hours before, Peter would have just said, no way, <laughs> That's, that, I can't do that, that's just not on. But following this vision, Peter is very open to doing that. And he actually goes off and ministers with Cornelius, the centurion, a Gentile, and shares the good news of Jesus with Gentiles, with non-Jews. That was radical. He was able to do that because God touched his heart. God changed his heart. But the intriguing part of the story for me is in the, the follow-up in Acts 11. And uh, there in Acts 11 we find um, Peter having to go up to Jerusalem to meet with the heavies in Jerusalem and uh, having to actually talk to them about this fact that he's been sharing the gospel with those who previously were just unclean. You didn't go near them. Initially, I think in verse 1 of chapter 11, we read that um, there were some who were gunning for him and there was no way he was going to get this thing through the members' meeting. No, it wasn't a members' <laughs> meeting, but and there was just no way he was going to get through. Okay? It was, these guys were gunning for him. But Peter was able to go through with them what had actually happened. And then, the, this is the verse that I wanted to get to. In verse 18 of chapter 11, we read, When they heard Peter's explanation, they became silent. They began praising God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles... God has granted repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. Wow, that was a big, big turnaround. As I say, one of the biggest changes that needed to happen in the early church. What a radical shift in their thinking, a really radical shift. But it was also going to be a radical shift in their thinking that had to translate into action because the following week they might have Gentiles sitting alongside them in their gatherings or in their MCGs or uh, their home groups and home fellowships and whatever. They were going to be rubbing shoulders with these people who previously had been outside of the kingdom. It was such an enormous change for them. How do you handle change? How do you handle 
that voice of God speaking to you through his word. How do you handle these verses in, in Matthew? For you, is there a, is there a real resonance? Oh, yeah, that's where my heart is, God. It's, it's really there. Or when you read the Beatitudes, is there a dissonance? Oh, wow, God, that's just so far from who I am. It just doesn't match up with, with what I'm living. I think it's important to ask those sort of questions so that we can then move into line, be open to God changing us, to move into line with his heart. Let's have a look at, uh, at these verses. We, um, I don't pretend to even uh, get near totally doing justice to them, but I wanted to share a few thoughts from them. From first, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness or justice, for they will be satisfied. And the two words, um, uh, interestingly enough, in French, the, the word justice is used here. Um, we use righteousness in most of the English translations, I believe. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice, after righteousness. I love this, uh, this word picture of hungering and thirsting. I want you to think, just think for a little bit about what that looks like. When you're hungry, what do you think about? Food. Yeah, you tend to think about food. And even if you start, uh, you know, getting onto something else and getting focused on a job, sure enough, someone walks in with a sort of box of chips or something or Carl cranks up his popcorn machine outside and uh, and you can smell the popcorn wafting in. Those sorts of things tend to happen. For us, that's a, a lot of what hunger um, represents. The reality, I suppose, though, is that we don't really experience hunger and thirst too much here in Australia, do we? And maybe in order to understand this verse, maybe we need to identify just a little more with those who live in abject poverty to really understand what Jesus is getting at. And just maybe the fact that we are so well off in the Western world contributes to our relative apathy with regard to some of these issues of justice and righteousness that Jesus is referring to. I know that I'm generalising, so forgive me, but that that tends to be in our our Western world, in our Australian culture. I I believe that it's, it's fairly accurate. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is exhorting us to strive for righteousness, for justice, as a major preoccupation, the focus of our efforts. It's not just an optional extra. You know, would you like some fries with that? Would you like a little bit of peace over here? Would you like a little bit of mercy, a little bit of justice? because that tends to be the way we see life quite often. We have so much, it's all on this smorgasbord. But the picture that Jesus paints here is virtually all-consuming. It makes me think of people like William Wilberforce, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King. 
people who each struggled with their own humanness and their own frailties, but people who are willing to make great sacrifices to achieve justice in the world, in their world. And of course, we find the ultimate example of this in Jesus, who gave himself himself totally to bring justice to this world. And we will see his kingdom of righteousness and justice come to complete fruition when he comes again to take us to be with him. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for justice in your life? Maybe you'd like to think about what change or what what changes you need to make, what adjustments you need to make in order to bring your life into line with the heart of Jesus. Verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I'm always challenged by that um, parable in uh, uh, that Jesus tells about the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. Why am I challenged? Because that's my default position. My human nature continually takes me back there. It's the story of this slave, servant, who who owed an enormous amount of money to to his king. uh, And the king was actually going about through the process of getting all his money back. And we read in verse 26 of Matthew 18, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Not just released him, Forgave him the debt. Forgiving this debt was such a great act of mercy towards his slave. But then that same slave went out and bumped into someone, another slave, who actually owed him some money, much less than what he had owed himself. And he demanded that that other guy pay what he was owed. But he couldn't. Similar reasons for his own shortfall. Our first slave then demanded that that fellow slave be thrown in prison. He was ruthless. I wonder how many of us fall into that mode. We've been forgiven so much and yet we are quick to pounce on others. and bring to light their shortfall, their shortcomings. It's only by the mercy and grace of God that I'm able to stand in his presence today. It was God's mercy that meant that Jesus suffered and died on the cross for me. There was no other way for me to find oneness with God outside of God's mercy. And now that I've accepted that mercy for myself, I need to demonstrate the same mercy to those around me. 
anything less would be just like a, a slap in the face to the one who's expressed that mercy to me. I wonder if there are others here this morning who sort of battle with that same issue. I won't go into any other examples or press it any further, but it's a challenge. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Just quickly on this one, the pure in heart, says one commentator, are those who are inwardly clean from sin through faith in God's provision, similar to what uh, I've just mentioned there, and through a continual acknowledging of their sinful condition, of their need of the Saviour. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and um, in in his second letter, chapter 5, he talks about us being a new creation, a new creature in Christ. And, And he concludes that it's made possible because God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin or to be sin for us on our behalf so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, that we might in fact have a pure heart. And I understand this verse in Second Corinthians, the last verse in Second Corinthians 5, I understand that to mean that because of Jesus' death on the cross, taking on himself my sin and your sin, you and I can have a pure heart before God. Without Jesus, that's impossible. With him, we are pure. Humbly, with thankful hearts, we worship him who has made it all possible for us. And through eternity, we will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I don't think there'd be too many people here today who'd uh, disagree with the thought that God desires that we live in peace with one another. It's a very significant aspect, as Luke emphasised last week. Um, It's just such an important part of Christian community that we live in peace, that we learn to live in peace with one another. We will have differences, but it's so important that we're able to resolve those differences, to work through those things in Christ-honouring ways. In his book uh, entitled Peacemaker, Christian lawyer Ken Sandy presents the way we respond naturally to conflict on a continuum. Who's heard of Peacemaker, by the way? Any? Yeah, we've got a few who are familiar with it. So he puts this continuum up, ranging from how we respond, sorry, how we respond to, to conflict, ranging from fleeing to fighting. Okay, so they're the extremes and all of the other bits and pieces in between. So, and I really believe that we do have something of a natural uh, disposition to be somewhere on that spectrum when we are in a conflict situation. Um, 
uh, we probably know all too many examples of, uh, you know, people who get into verbal slanging matches or fisticuffs even or being ready to kill the other person. That's the fighting end of the spectrum. That's their natural default position in conflict. I'm sure you've seen um, uh, people like that, and if you haven't, just stand and watch children for a little while. You'll see it. <laughs> um, but then on the other end, you have uh, people um, who are more prone to just walk away, and even further than that, they probably hide <laughs> um, from the conflict. They just don't want to be part of it. Um, they want to leave it behind. And as it works out, I'm in the latter category. Um, I tend to just <laughs> want to flee conflict. That's my natural disposition. Um, Jocelyn, however, <laughs> she tends to confront conflict. Um, I won't go to the fighting stage, but she, she, she does tend to confront, and that con- probably conjures up pictures of her racing around the house, chasing me around. Um, but, uh, it doesn't happen, not very often anyway. <laughs> the reality, though, is that as individuals, we develop strategies, don't we? to deal with conflict. And Sandy, uh, Ken Sandy that is, encourages us to develop biblically based strategies for resolving conflict. And you would be amazed at the outcomes. Read his book and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it and get a lot from it. It's a very, very worthwhile read. Um, We've actually run some of his courses uh, down in Tassie, the peacemaking workshops. And uh, One of the things that really touched us was the the people who come into the workshop who say, we we live in peace. We don't have any conflicts. We, you know, no conflict in my life. Um, And in the first workshop where that happened, I I think we were a little bit taken aback by it um, because when you're immersed as the teachers of these things, you're just immersed in in this, in the reading of it and preparation of it. And, um, you know, they... They said, "Oh no, no, we don't uh, don't have any conflict." But after a few weeks into the course, they really they realised, in fact, that they were simply avoiding conflict. They were just walking away um, in the family, with their spouse, with their children, in the work situation. They were just turning their back on it and walking away. And you've probably had dealings with people on the other end as well. But either way, the, the consequences of unresolved conflict include hurt people, issues that haven't really been resolved properly, people not talking to each other, all that sort of stuff. And, of course, if you really take it to the extreme, um, we have had um, uh, wars as a result. There are still wars happening in the world today as a result of unresolved conflict. I won't go there, but it's, uh, you can study that for yourself. But So God wants us to, to live in peace, one with the other. I think we all agree with that. But as I reflected further on this verse, blessed are the peacemakers, um, I realised that there's actually a further meaning to it. Not just how we get on together, but this concept of taking peace to those who don't yet know 
the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, reaching out to others with the gospel of Jesus. We mentioned our daughter, Anne-Sophie, earlier. Um, in a paper that she presented to a conference, a women's conference, um, last year in Sydney, she spoke of some of the stuff that she grapples with uh, on the field in a male-dominated uh, society such as uh, the Niger one is, um, and in, in very trying circumstances. And uh, she also... In working such long hours, etc., etc., she was receiving a whole lot of questions from her supporters when she sent out her newsletters. She'd get these questions coming back, like, "What's the point of all this physical care if the person never hears about Jesus?" And at the time, uh, Aunt Sophia and I were having some uh, ongoing conversations, I think, over email about it, and. Unsafed concluded that the answer to this type of question seemed to be tied up in the Hebrew concept of shalom, the Hebrew concept of peace represented by the word shalom. It's a word that speaks of wholeness and well-being as it applies to all aspects of life, physical, social, emotional and spiritual. We in Australia tend to separate out the various aspects of life, don't we, into silos. But that's not the, other, the way other peoples in the world actually view life. It's not necessarily the way that God views life either, I might add. Many of the Af- African peoples, for example, readily assimilate the physical with the spiritual, with the emotional and community aspects of life, acknowledging that they are intertwined. And in some cases, they probably do life much better. Their life together much better than we do here in the West. Many of us are familiar with the Old Testament prophecy relating to Jesus. Isaiah 53 is a, is a passage we often read at around Easter time. And in verse 5, we read that the punishment that brought us peace was on him. The word peace in that verse is the Hebrew word shalom. The the punishment that brought us shalom was on him. Jesus died for us to have shalom. In his his gospel account, Matthew in chapter 8 tells of Jesus healing the leper, then healing the centurion's servant, then healing Peter's mother-in-law before quoting from Isaiah 53. Jesus brought wholeness to all of those people. And Matthew then gives the account of Jesus healing a bleeding woman with the comment that her faith has healed her. We don't necessarily understand that, but her faith had healed her. After 12 years of bleeding and being considered unclean, this woman is now healed and clean, restored physically and socially by her faith. This is shalom. Wholeness. God's heart is for shalom. Going back to Anne-Sophie's conference paper, she closed that paper with something that I, a little story that I'd like to read to you. The surgeons report to me that the lady they did the caesarean for had an anaesthetic complication and arrested on the table. 
after CPR and some adrenaline, her heart started again. But when she came back too, she was quite agitated. I check on her in the morning, sorry, in the afternoon, pray with the family, laying hands on this suffering mother and put her baby to her breast. The next day, she's alert and doing well. Praise God. I share the story of Jesus with her and her family. Jesus, who rose from the dead, not just after minutes, but after days. He rose from the dead to give us eternal life. Not all of the stories are finished in that way, of course, in Niger. But she then says, I share with the women about the God who loves them and wants shalom for them, wholeness physically and spiritually. The God who gave his own son for them, the God who is there to hear their grief and cry with them, the God who in the new creation will wipe every tear from their eyes. The reality is that I won't get this right, the balance between the physical and the spiritual care. Only Jesus can do this perfectly. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's pray. Father God, we really have so much to learn from your word. And uh, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts to bring about the changes that you want to make so that we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We really want to be truly your image bearers here on this earth, your representatives. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.